0: is this lost art of giving da'wah. You know, a lot of times we find ourselves scrolling up these videos on YouTube and on Instagram, watching some nice comebacks, right? In da'wah, Speaker's Corner back in UK. And we see da'wah at its best, but we also see da'wah at its worst, (laughs) right? We see how, I think we were all exposed to how da'wah should go and how da'wah should not go. But the problem is we don't know whether what we're looking at is the proper way to give da'wah. Just because a person won an argument does not mean that they won a heart and that they conveyed a message and that they delivered what they should be delivering as Muslims. So inshallah ta'ala today, uh, Sheikh Fahd is going to shed light on this lost art. Sheikh Fahad Taslim, he came and joined our community in multiple programs in the past. He is more you know he's closer to us than to need uh, a lengthy introduction we all alhamdulillah benefit from his works and his research alhamdulillah his extensive research in so many different fields in islam alhamdulillah rabbil alamin but today we're going to explore the field of getting of of uh, the art of giving da'wah بإذن الله Azza wa jall. May Allah Subh'anaHu Wa ta'ala make us all du'aat fi sabilillah and increase us in wisdom and in knowledge so that we may deliver the message. Sisters, inshaAllah, you're encouraged to come forward. If uh, you want to ask questions, definitely do uh, come forward so that the sheikh can see you when you raise your hand and ask a question. BarakAllahu feekum. salaam alaikum, alaykum rahmatullah. Sheikh Fahad, without further ado.
1: Okay, Bismillah wa rahman rahim. Alhamdulillah. rabbil alameen. So inshallah, where I wanted to start with tonight was a certain experience that, um, that I had. And this experience is one that I don't think I will probably ever have again. And maybe others might not have it. So I was when I was studying at UT Austin, I was studying there in the Middle Eastern Studies Department. Um, and one day in the, midst, in the middle of the semester, I get, a, I get a call from our, our CEO at the time, Hamza Zorzis I'm sure some of you might have heard of him. Some people know about him. Anyway, so he calls and he says, Fahad, you need to jump on a plane tomorrow and head to New Zealand. So I'm thinking, man, I'm in the middle of my semester. I've got assignments. Like, you want me to just, I mean, he goes, no, it's important. You know, after everything that's happened there, we need to have a presence there. Okay, so now what is he referring to? This was the time of which there was the shootings at Christchurch. for those of you who remember. So if you remember, a shooter had gone in, uh, shot up two masjids, not just one, two masjids, while people were praying Jum'ah, Salatul Jum'ah. And what had happened was, was that after all of this had happened, many people had passed away, a lot of Muslims, there was a lot of trauma a lot of the population in New Zealand really took this to heart. And I'm talking about non-Muslim population. How could such an event happen in our country? So what resulted from that is that people wanted to come to the masjid and offer condolences. They wanted to learn about Islam. And so the reason why Hamza had called, he said, right now we are getting reports that we have at least 500 people a day that are visiting the masjid. And the issue is, is that if you've just lost a loved one, you are not in dawah mode. You're not, I mean, if you lose your son and someone says, okay, let's go make some dawah, you're not gonna be like, yes, let's do it. So there was a severe, you can say, shortage. So myself, and for those of you who know, Imam Anwar, Arafat, uh, I think you may have visited here, we jumped on a plane and we headed to new zealand and sure enough it was like um, we had heard we would get up at fajr and there'd be people waiting outside the masjid at fajr waiting to come in waiting to offer their condolences waiting to know about islam and all of this and we would do and we would basically be speaking to people from the time of fajr all the way past isha all the way to like 11 or 12 at night and at that time we just you know, we needed a break, basically. But what was, what was interesting about that experience, or what I learned from that experience, is that our understanding of how Dawah works is quite skewed. Because when we think about dawa, especially nowadays, you know, Sheikh Murad just mentioned, a lot of our understanding of how dawa works is informed by YouTube videos, specifically Speaker's Corner, so you see a certain speaker on there and he goes and he decimates his, his opponent. You're like, yeah, that's what's up, <laughs> right? But the reality is, is that sort of aspect of dawah is a very, very small part of calling someone to Islam. In fact, I would say if you were to you know, look, look at this as a percentage, it may be maybe 10%. Whereas most people think it is like 99% of how dawah is done. And what New Zealand did, what Christchurch did, was bring that to the fore. I can't tell you how many people accepted Islam in that duration. That people would walk into the masjid. Now, you're looking at your masjid here, you've got the carpets, you've got the paint, you know, the paint is solid, you've got the, uh, the mihrab here, and everything looks good. What sort of structure were the people at that time walking into? they're walking into walls that have like paper plastered all over it because of the bullet holes and things like that paper that's on the windows because the windows were shot through the carpet has been taken out because the blood stains have to be cleaned off of it all they're walking into is not a beautiful masjid like this right allahumma barik but what they're walking into is literally like an empty space but something about that empty space distinguished it from other empty spaces where people would walk in and it wouldn't be about, tell me about Islam. It would be about, there's something different about this space, something that I feel that I've never felt before. And it's one of the aspects that I, you know, that I saw this more than once. People would come in, it's like, you know, they may have come in with some sort of expectation Like maybe they're used to going to church, and in church you have seats, you have a pulpit, you have, you know, just, and you have a lot of, let's say, you know, ostentation, right? You've got a lot of decoration and things like that. And here you have this empty building, no chairs or barely any chairs. And it's like, it's almost like, what do you do here, right? And yet that emptiness is something that was in a sense fulfilling for many people, because they would walk in and they would express that. It's like, you know what, all of the busyness in the outside world, I feel like it's all just gone. It just dissipated, okay? People were coming there with a certain level of sorrow. People were in tears, like these people that had passed away, how could this have happened in our country? And what you find is that, like I mentioned, many people accepted Islam. Now, while we were there, and as we were speaking to people, and I'll tell you about some of those conversations, inshallah, while we were there, there was another group that was visiting, answering the same call you can say. And they perhaps came with a certain view of da'wah as you see it on YouTube today, where it's like we got to go in fast and quick, give them the haq, tell them about tawhid fast, and ask them to take the shahada. Now the thing is, One of the elements that was missing in that was what you might call emotional intelligence. Because when people would ask them, like, okay, so tell me about these people that passed away, their response was extremely harsh. They would say, don't worry about the people that passed away, worry about yourself, you might end up in the hellfire. (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, you know, and, and. and so, and let me tell you. And so they would continue on. Here are some of the rational reasons why you should accept Islam. Let me tell you about the kalâm cosmological argument. Yani, you're someone's coming in. They're in this emotive state, and you're now moving on to this sort of rational <laughs> argument. There's just such a disconnect that that group eventually we petition, and even the people in the masjid petition for them to just leave, right? Like go somewhere else. One of the benefits that we had in the group that we were with is that we had with us a counselor, and she was very helpful. She was, had, she was joining us from Australia. And even in the language that we were using, she said, just be careful, all right? When you're speaking to someone who's lost someone, don't say the victims of this a, a particular tragedy, okay? Because that puts them in a state of, victimhood like you know their victims and so on and so forth rather talk about the people that survived as survivors it gives it a positive you know intonation it gives it a positive aspect as opposed to a negative of you are a victim because you lost someone just simple things like that that are rooted in language so when it comes to what i wanted to speak about when it comes to dawah itself we have to understand there is much more, like Sheikh Murad just mentioned, there's a lot more than just debate. In fact, I wanted to give a type of categorization so we understand this and we, we've kind of conceptualized it in a way that's a little more precise. This concept of, uh, let's say, rational disputation, of arguing the point, of trying to provide intellectual and a rational defense of your let's say, creed, your faith, your position, it falls under a certain rubric called apologetics, okay? Now, apologetics is not an apology. So some people might think apolog- apologetics means to apologize. That's not what it's about. It comes from you know, Plato's apology where he's speaking about defending certain positions. So what apologetics is, it is a defense of a certain creed or a certain worldview or a certain paradigm. So this is one aspect, apologetics. Then you have something known as polemics. Polemics is not defending your own creed or your own worldview. It is criticizing someone else's worldview or someone else's faith, right? And you find these terms used quite a bit amongst Christians. So you have, you know, Christian apologetics and, you know, Christian polemics and things like that. They're useful in terms of our conversation tonight because what we realize is that da'wah, only a part of da'wah, is related to apologetics and polemics. An important part, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you never need to argue a point, but understand that we have, we have, we have given it so much value, it's as if we think that that is the end-all, be-all of da'wah. And the reality, it, it isn't. What is the objective of da'wah? It's not a rhetorical question. So let me let me hear from some of you. Why do we do dawah? What is the objective? Where are we trying to get to? Spread the message of Islam. Spread the message of Islam. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Invite. invite. Yeah. To what? Obviously. To, uh, obviously. Okay. All right. In in invite. Okay. What else? Sisters. What what is the objective of dawah? Turning off. Sorry. Turning on. Spreading knowledge. Okay, JazakAllah <laughs> Khair. Spreading knowledge, okay. What else? Spreading the, Spreading the truth, okay. Fulfilling our obligation. Fulfilling our obligation, very good, okay. Yes, way back there, nice and loud. To save the humanity from going to, to, to hellfire, very good, okay. All right, last one, right here. Following the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. None of these are incorrect answers, all right? So yes, it's an invitation, it's calling to the truth, it's calling to, you know, uh, it's, it's following the sunnah of the Prophet All of those are under the rubric of da'wah, no doubt about it, okay? But the objective, to put it in a very precise way, is to take a person and move him from one state to a state where that person is closer to Allah, okay? To make it just very simple. Now that state could be that he's not close to Allah at all, he's not Muslim, or that that Muslim is far away and they're having doubts about Islam. It's just The point is to make them worshipers of Allah and better worshipers of Allah. Sometimes that happens by way of rational arguments. Most of the time, and I'm gonna say this and this might get me in some trouble. Most of the time, that is not the case. So at Sapiens, we run a service called Lighthouse Mentoring. All right, and uh, Sheikh Murad was mentioning mentors. He said you guys have 40 mentors here or something like this? All right, mashallah. So this service, the target audience includes ex-Muslims, Muslims Muslims that have left Islam, Muslims that are having doubts about Islam, non-Muslims, and the fourth category is people interested in the first three categories. In other words, how do we deal with ex-Muslims, Muslims Muslims having doubts, and non-Muslims, okay? this service has been active for the last, I want to say, two and a half years. And just the sheer amount of data we have collected in those two and a half years, because we started it maybe two Ramadans ago, we didn't advertise it, we didn't, you know, we didn't, it was like maybe what they call a soft launch. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, we didn't ask too many, we didn't tell too many people about it, within one week of opening this particular service, right? So this is an Earth service you can log on to, you have a free one hour session, free of charge with one of our mentors. It was booked for six months straight within one week. Now that tells you, A, about just the demand, okay? In other words, if you wanted an appointment and you were one week late, you have to wait six months, right? And not because you know there was only one guy running it, there was four of us. You know, and four of us, meaning we're putting in 10, 12, 20 hours a week, at least some of us were full-time 40 hours a week and it's already booked. So the sheer amount of data that we collected is phenomenal. And I can tell you by way of the data, by way of the personal conversations that I have had, most of the time, it is not a rational issue. And most of the time, it starts with a rational issue. It starts with a question. Oh, I don't really understand this particular hadith. How could this hadith really be true if we understand in science yada 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 yada? Okay? If a person does not have the skill set to be able to navigate and investigate what's going on behind the scenes, they will jump into just answering the question. And that is a major faux pas. That's a major mistake. Because at the end of the day, many times, it is not a rational issue that someone is having. It is something that is much deeper than that. I'll give you an example. I had um, just, I think it was last week, there was um, a person that logged on. They said, look, I need you to, to explain to me how I can convince someone about the issues related to feminism and the fact that Islam is not, as they perceive, a patriarchal religion, okay? So now, one approach I could have said, I said, okay, okay, let's now, let's deconstruct that. Feminism has some philosophical assumptions, okay? One of those assumptions within feminism, by the way, uh, what is feminism? Before I start blabbing on about, what, what, anyone, someone help me out. What do we mean by feminism? What's feminism? Okay, everyone has their own idea of what it is. Okay, all right, anybody else? We have a postmodernist here, Yanni. It's, whatever, everything goes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think the one that advocating for Okay, all right. Anybody else? How about some of the sisters? No, No definition of feminism? None? Advocating for the rights of women, okay. Generally, when people think about feminism, it's somewhere in the area of women's rights, correct? Okay, now, when he asked me this, I could have now gone into, look, it's not as simple as that, because while feminism itself as a worldview, as a paradigm, has certain philosophical assumptions, okay? In order for you to fight for women's rights, you have to make an assumption that women have value. You have to assume that, right? Because someone could say, why should women have rights? Like if I asked, I shouldn't ask. If I asked you guys, why should women have rights? Because we're alive? alive. Okay, anybody else? We're also people, people. okay. Let me take that a bit further. Why should people have rights? Why should humans have rights? And usually the, the response I get is not people, they say, why should men have rights, right? And I usually say, okay, well, why should men have rights? Why should anyone have rights? And so it starts, what what happens is you start to tease away at some of those philosophical foundations. Because in order to establish feminism, or let's say in the area of women's rights, you have to make an assumption. That assumption is self-ownership, okay? So what's an example of this? You know, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, you had people outside of Planned Parenthood with a big placard saying what? My body, my choice, all right? In Islam, is that an assumption that we agree with? Self ownership? No, of course not. You go to any funeral. What is the wor- what, it, what are the words on everyone's lips? Inna lillahi wa inna To Allah we belong. So our ownership is not ourselves, but it's Allah. So there are philosophical differences, and the issue arises that when, let's say, someone who you know ascribes to the worldview related to feminism. How would you justify self-ownership? This becomes a bigger problem, okay? How are we going to justify it? Are we even good owners when compared to Allah? Are we more merciful than Allah to ourselves? No. Are we more knowing than Allah? No. Are we more loving than Allah? No. If you think about it, Allah's love is absolutely pure. Even more than a mother's love. Because a mother has a need to love. Allah is al-ghani. He has no need. So the love that comes from Allah is absolutely pure. Is there one that can be more loving than Allah? Even when we compare ourselves? So what gives us the right to even be owners of ourselves? In comparison to the divine. Okay? Now, that's not the point that I was going to make. What I was saying was, I could have entered into this entire conversation, but I didn't. And you're like, okay, what was the point of all that, all right? What I wanted to find out is where is the question coming from? And so I asked him, I said, why are you asking the question? Are you concerned about this or is there someone that is asking you this? He said, no, someone's asking me and they're really putting me in a corner and I'm constantly having to defend my position. I said, who is it that's doing this, right? And, you know, because these conversations are private, you know, it's a one-on-one mentorship type thing. People are a little more open. So he said to me, he said, I have two sisters, and they're the ones that are arguing with me. I said, okay. Um, I said, tell me more about you, your background, your relationship with your sisters. He says, my sisters moved to Las Vegas, and they are both prostitutes, and proud of it. SubhanAllah, man. I mean, these are, you, I, I cannot make this up, okay? And in defending their choice to do this, they then knock Islam by saying that this is just the patriarchy and so on and so forth. So I need an argument to defeat their argument. All right, so do you really think that an argument's gonna be good enough? Up to what you know so far, what do you think, in your opinion? It won't, because guess what? You have to then ask question, what caused them to go from, let's say, a Muslim household, they were Muslims, to now all the way to this extreme where they're they're now out and they're defending this as a position, and I started to investigate more, and he started saying, yeah, well, the thing is, uh, you know, my father, he was quite abusive. He left when I was a certain age, and so that affiliation with Islam, because my dad was Muslim, was about his abusive nature. So in this case, when you are calling someone to Islam, in this particular case, do you think that a simple syllogism will will solve the problem? Of course not. This I'm telling you, I'm just giving you one example. There's hundreds of examples like this. Just being in the realm of winning the argument, it is not the end-all be-all of da'wah. It has importance, but it is like sheik al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said, when it came to specifically rational arguments, he said that these rational arguments, yes, they have a benefit, but they are medicine for the sick and not nutrition for humanity. Not everyone needs a rational argument, okay? So now if that's the case, what are some of the other tools that you're supposed to use in your da'wah? And first of all, the objective, let me just come back to that for a second. So if the objective is not winning the argument, what is it? And I can't get too deep into this because we'll be here all night, but understand that every human is created upon the fitra, And the objective when it comes to da'wah is to bring the fitra into a state of homeostasis, right, to use medical terminology here, to bring it to the state where it is functioning normally. And what that means is, is that when it's able to see the truth, it's able to recognize it. And when the fitrah gets clouded over, there are multiple ways in which you can uncloud and bring the fitra back to its normal state. One is rational arguments, but amongst them is the Quran. And here I'm not referring to the rational arguments about the Quran. I'm referring about, let's say, even the recitation of the Quran, how it sounds. You know, we, we don't, just because of the environment we live in, and we have so much emphasis that we place on kind of rationality and science and so on and so forth, we sometimes discount something as simple as having someone hear the recitation of the Qur'an. But I can tell you now, it is extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. Number two, so you have the Qur'anic recitation. You have the Qur'anic, let's say, meanings of the Qur'an employing the Quran. I would say this is one of the main strategies. Why? You know, nurun ala nur. You have the nur of the human being, that fitra, and it connects with the nur of revelation. So revelation is very profound and very impactful. Number two, certain types of experiences. When you think about, let's say, how humans interact, much of what we believe is based upon how we interact with other people. And much of what we stay believing is not a function of some sort of syllogism, it is a function about community. You know, this is something what they call um, social conformity. So those of you who study psychology, they've done lots of studies on what they call social conformity, all right? Social conformity studies are basically how much does a person conform to the group dynamics? You don't need social psychology to, to really get into this, okay, to really delve into this, because all of us know your environment has an impact on you. The people around you influence you. You don't need social psychology for this. I'll give you a simple example. And maybe I gave this last time I was here. If you, like, let's say your coworkers are saying, you know what, let's go out to lunch. And, um, and you happen to really like cheesecake. Anyone like cheesecake? One person? Two, three. All right, a few of you thought I'm not in Texas anymore. What's going on, man? No one likes cheesecake. All right, so a few like cheesecake. All right, so let's say your coworkers say, man, we're going out for cheesecake. We're going to Cheesecake Factory, all right? So in your mind, you've already formulated, I'm gonna have the banana cream cheesecake, all right? Now, you fit in whatever cheesecake you like, okay? And so now it's like 9 a.m., you're already thinking about this cheesecake, and then, you know, come like 11.30, now it's like time we're going to Cheesecake Factory, this is great. So you get to Cheesecake Factory, you've got like 20 more of your coworkers, they're all there, you know, you have your food and now that, that moment arises. It comes, it's finally here. The waiter comes and says, can I interest you in some dessert? Ah, music to the ears. And then he asks one of your coworkers who's sitting at the other end of the table and that coworker says, you know what, I'm full, I'm good. And then the second co-worker says, no, I think I'm gonna pass on dessert. And then the third co-worker says, I'm full, I'm good. Until 25 co-workers pass and all of them had said, no, I'm good, I'm full, are you really going to be the mujahid or the mujahida that says, I don't care about anyone, I am having that cheesecake? Probably not, <laughs> okay? Maybe, maybe you have that sort of just gone, you just love cheesecake that much, but most likely not. Okay? And this is a function of social conformity. And, it's, and so when it comes to how do we uncloud the fitrah, part of that is the environment someone's in. Last time I was here, I spoke about the environment of beauty and, the, and, and, and natural beauty and nature itself, but even the people that are surrounding someone have a profound impact. And if that's the case, how they interact with a person and the affiliation that a person associates with Islam and Muslims. That's why an important part of da'wah, and you'll see this in every da'wah course, is the character of the da'iyah the character of the caller. But it's a lot more profound than that because your character can make or break a situation. Like the brothers in New Zealand who were there, it was just not effective. They didn't have that sort of emotional intelligence. So we said rational arguments are part of it. We said the Quran is a part of it. We said your environment experiences are a part of it, positive and negative. Certain traumatical experiences can be part of it. Spirituality, engaging in spiritual acts. You know, sometimes if if the non-Muslim says, you know what, can I pray with you? Our, maybe our instinct is to say, no, no, no. Like what, why would you pray with us, man? Right, it's not, Allah's not gonna accept it from you. There are certain people that came to Islam just because they participated in the salah before they were Muslim. Spiritual practices, when people say, you know what, can we join you in fasting Ramadan? Don't turn them away. Say, Yeah, let's do it. Invite them to tarawih as well. Because now you've got like, you know, two for one. The Quran, <laughs> you know, and the actual environment. Yeah? And so on. So spiritual practices are a part of that. And there's others, which, you know, again, this is not a, a full course on, on, on how to do dawah and things like that. But you get the idea. Now let me kind of conclude because I want to open up for Q&A and give you guys the opportunity to, to kind of ask some questions if you have some. Let's go back to New Zealand, and we'll conclude with that. One of the one of the that was there with us, he had, he was coming from Australia, but he was originally from Fiji. And, um, you know, we were, you know, we were engaged with people all day, and so, you know, I'm speaking to a group of people. Imam Omar is speaking to a group of people. And all of a sudden, this gentleman, this this, this sheikh, we, you know, we know him well. alhamdulillah, we see him rush into so there's like a corridor of the masjid where the shooter had actually come in from. That corridor um, it leads outside and then you have the masalla area. Okay, so we see this this sheikh. He comes in, races in, and falls into sajda. and he is crying and crying and crying. And we're just scratching our heads, like what is going on, like what happened. So after he gets done, you know, after you know we, we calm him down and everything. We're like, Shaykh, what, like, what happened? He said, well, there, there's a sister and she took shahada. Now, we were kind of scratching our heads because we had seen lots of people just now take shahada. Like, what's the deal? Like, why, why, why is this? And he himself saw a like, few people take shahada. It wasn't like, you know, yeah, it's emotional, but yani, this is something else. So he says that, um, he goes, this sister, she walked in, some of the other sisters were give, give, making dawah, giving her dawah, and she accepted Islam. And I happened to talk to the sister and I said, sister, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Fiji. He said, where in Fiji? Now remember, this brother is from where originally? Fiji. Where in Fiji? He said, such and such place. Okay. um, In this particular place, was there somewhere that you lived particularly in this, let's say, town? In such and such place, that's where I'm from. And then he said, what's your father's name? And she said, it's such and such. And that was his father. <laughs> he had met up with his long lost sister when he was young. His dad, you know, he had multiple marriages he had walked out. His mother is the one that raised him, took him to Australia. He eventually went to Medina, studied there. But now he's at Christchurch and he meets his sister that he didn't even know he had. On the day she takes her shahada, it was so powerful and overwhelming, but it was it was just something that I'm never going to forget, right? In those those sort of those moments and those experiences. So coming back to you know moments, experiences in Dawa in general, what I wanted to kind of have you guys leave with, at least, at very least is to understand that da'wah has an element of rationality and argumentation and disputation. We're not saying it doesn't, but it has its place. Don't discount all of the other tools that you have that Allah's given us. The very masjid you have, the space that you occupy, this space that you inhabit every day is extremely powerful, more than you actually realize. It can bring out some of the best of people. One last thing I'll mention before I, before I conclude. I actually went back the next year. And when I went back, I went back with my, with my wife. And lat, the year before that, when I was there, right after the shootings, there was a sister who had lost her husband. And she had lost her husband, but she was there every single day making dawah, like from morning till evening. And she had just lost her husband. And, and mind you, these, these are not easy scenarios. Because there were a lot of parents there, like they had a high school, and in the high school, the parents would pick up their children and drop them for Juma. So imagine the parents who now pick up their children to bring them to Juma, and that is the last time they see them. I mean, it's, it, was, it was like a crucible emotionally. So this sister lost her husband, but she was just extremely active. Everyone else had just, they were in a state of grief, but this sister was just on the ball like just day in, day out. She outworked all of us and we were coming from abroad and we were not dealing with the 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 trauma that she was dealing with. So the next year I'd asked my wife, I'm like, when we meet that sister, inshallah we will, ask her, why was she so motivated? Why was she so motivated to, to call people to Islam? And so my wife asked her and she said, you know, the day that I lost many friends and I lost my husband I realized something. Something came to me. She said that what came to me was that Allah had chosen all of them for shahada, And he didn't choose me. He favored them and he didn't favor me. And so clearly I must have been doing something wrong. I must be sinful. And to make up for that, I had to go and call people to Islam. Subhanallah, man. I mean, what a way to like, understand the scenario and deal with the scenario, right? You are dealing with human beings that are not just rational robots. They are psycho, spiritual, emotive beings that are extremely complex. So don't let dawah just be analytical arguments to win the argument. Let it be that you're reaching out to another human being because you want goodness for that human being and you want jannah for that human being okay so i'll stop there we'll open up for some q and a inshallah if you don't have any questions we can call it a night so it's way back there wa alaikum <laughs> assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Sure. 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 Right. Did you give them cookies? Okay. The cookies is <laughs> Mohim. <Mohammed>. Oh, we. <oui. laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so look. Now, this gets into another kind of area of dawah, but when you are approaching your neighbors, try to link some of the things that you're doing with Islam. That's very important, right? So I, I was joking about, I mean, I was saying cookies, but you can even link cookies to Islam, right? Mentioning something like, you know, I, you know these cookies, they are brought to you by Islam, right? Not to make it, not to oversimplify it. And then maybe some, mention something about the rights of neighbors, that this comes from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and we believe him to be a prophet. He's our, our, our moral compass, how we understand things. You know, one of the main motivations of why you know, I'm coming out and reaching out to you is because of the Prophet Sallallahu And I just, do you know much about him? No, I don't. Okay, well, let me tell you about him. Right? And that's not really abrasive. You're not coming out and be like, look, let me tell you the haq. Right? Now that you have my cookie. halas, you enjoyed that cookie? Here it comes. Right? You don't have to do that. But again, someone asked me a question, you know, at the other masjid that I was at. And they said that... Um, you know how how is very similar to your question how, how do i start the conversation and a lot of times what happens is is that you start the conversation by starting the conversation and you'll make mistakes but you get better with experience and i told them it's a lot like you know and i think sheikh kamal al-maki mentions this he says it's a lot like swimming like when you jump in the pool the the water's really cold but eventually you get used to it and these things come a little more natural right now the fact that I can use cookies and link it to like, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi or whatever, you know, for me, maybe just, you know, having like 20 years of experience in this area, okay, but you've got to get started somewhere. So you may make mistakes in the process, but at least give it a shot, right? As long as you have those other things in place, the characters in place, reaching out to your neighbors is in place, you know, try to make that link, you know, and Allah knows best. So any questions from the sisters? No questions on feminism? Okay. Alright, yes.
0: Sure. So, the most difficult part for me is like,
1: to, to Hindus Hindus? Okay. okay. So, I'll be honest, I have limited experience with Hindus, right? I have limited experience with Hindus, okay? So, and, and you might be right, you know, but generally I think kind of going back to kind of core principles, right? So if you think about Hinduism and some of their assumptions, like what are some of the assumptions that they may come to you? They may say like, look, Allah accepts all religions, let's say, I'm just saying, right? So maybe they had this perennial sort of understanding of you know, all, all paths lead, lead to God. So why are you so worried about Islam, right? Maybe. One of the things that actually in this course that we just did, we teach is the conceptualization. Now this might get a bit technical, so just stay with me for a second. The conceptualization of Islam as a religion is a bit problematic. Okay, and I'll tell you why. So one, so in the last section or where I'm coming from, there's a thesis that I presented. And I said, I would argue that Islam is not a religion. And you might say like, what do, you, what do you mean it's not a religion, right? And when I say it's not a religion, I don't mean that in some sort of black and white clear way. What I mean is when people hear the word religion, there's a certain perception of what religion is, all right? There's certain assumptions. So religion is private. It has a domain. You can have religion and non-religion, okay? Um, it doesn't get involved in things like, let's say, politics. Uh, you can separate religion from your life. All of these assumptions are part of the concept of religion. When you take Islam and you try to fit it into that box, it's actually a bit of a problem. In fact, when you think about the term deen itself, deen doesn't fit into that box either, okay? so. When, when, let's say if, if a Hindu was to say all religions lead to God, you'd say, hold on a second, what do you mean by religion? Because Islam to me, in a sense, it's a religion, but perhaps a better understanding of Islam is that it is a worldview, how I view reality. And how I view reality is gonna differ than the, a, another person, right? So instead of talking about religions, let's move to say, what is how do you view reality? And then you can get into things like, okay, what exists, what we call ontology. How do we know truth, what we call epistemology. What is the purpose? Because every single person has a worldview. There's no one that can be, that can transcend their world. So worldview is basically the lenses by which you look at reality. And Hindus have a lens by which they look at reality. Okay, so therefore, you move the discussion from one of religions all being acceptable, and therefore that is the ethic, that is the moral, to saying before we get to the moral, let's get to the source of the moral. In other words, what is part of your worldview? What do you believe exists? How do you know that? That's what we call epistemology. What is purpose, meaning in life? What, gives you, what Why are we here? Basically, it's to focus on existential questions, questions about our existence. Every worldview and some, even atheists, have in some form or fashion have to either answer these questions or put them in a box called unsolved problems and put it away. But it doesn't make it go away. And Hindus are in the same category. They they have to have some sort of answer for that. And when you get to that, it actually helps you to get to tawhid a lot quicker. Because you're talking about foundational questions about why they exist, how they got here, and what happens when they die. So Allah knows best. Uh, I would think that would be a relatively good way. <laughs> yeah, again, you want, to, you want to be careful, right? It's, you don't want to be too abrasive. You know, I had a friend of mine once and he was like, he, you know, there, he was, had, a, had a Hindu roommate or something. And he, he, like, made, like, a steak, and he goes, man, this is your God, in it? Mmm, tastes good, you know? And I was like, dude, Vasil, come on, man, that's so messed up. Right, anyhow. Yes, we had a question on this end. Yes. Uh so My question is, like, for, from a youth's perspective, how do we feel to give Nawa to our friends who the same age as Sure. Like, the people, that with, the people that we grew up with, they've seen our flaws as we've grown up. Sure. Okay. Um, so when, so first of all, I mean, we have to understand that character goes a long way. So I think that goes without saying. At least, at least in this community, I'm, I'm thinking that's pretty, pretty self-evident, right? Almost self-evident. And then when it comes to kind of how do you call them to Islam, get, you know, encourage them, invite them to be involved in your life as a Muslim, right? And again, you could move let's say whatever conversation you're having, to questions about existence. Have you ever thought about like why we're here? Like what gives life meaning? Like is it just meaningless? And present it as questions, right? And those are very human questions. Like why do we exist? What, you know, what does it all mean? Is it all just meaningless, right? I can't tell you, we have very straight answers for that. And that's why for us, it's not like a, some sort of overwhelming question. Like, what's the purpose of life? It's pretty clear. Okay, so worship Allah, move along, right? Khalas, we're gonna move along now. The people that have not been exposed to Islam, that is a, a question that is, is overwhelming for them because you know they don't have access to it. And if you don't have access to it, if someone brings it up, you might, you might even be excited. Like, yeah, yeah, so what does it all mean? So just like I was mentioning earlier, try to find a way to get to those deeper existential questions. Obviously, without being abrasive, without you know, maintaining that character, but then kind of teasing those things out and saying, you know what, you know, talking about your personal experiences, man, we just came from the masjid, we just attended a janazah, the funeral prayer. It was really, you know, it was heart-wrenching because I knew the mother and so on and so forth. And I had to console her by mentioning that, you know, you know, that she died on a Friday and that's a sign of a good end you know, for us as Muslims, because we believe in paradise and we believe x y and z right so you know use your personal life and your experiences as a muslim to open some of those doors inshallah allah knows best any other questions yes so sorry could you repeat that they, like, my, um, yeah it, like, them, like, it, like, yeah how? So I'm gonna refer you to the last time I was here, <laughs> which is we did a talk on beauty, okay? And then how is beauty perceived and how do we understand the concept of beauty? And beauty has an ocular reality. You see something beautiful, you turn towards it because of a pleasure you feel, but there's also auditory beauty. And this has to do with things like rhetoric. So last time I was here, I mentioned that rhetorical devices we appreciate those things, not because necessarily of content, because of how they're formulated. So I think the last time I was here, I gave the example of um, Bond, James Bond, right? For those of you who are here, I don't know if you remember. I said, they said that this is the most, you know, this is one of the most uh, emblematic phrases in all of cinematic history. Why? I mean, the guy's just telling you his name. He could have said, first name James, last name Bond, right? Or I am James Bond. Why is it that there's some sort of panache when he says, Bond. James Bond. It's just It sounds good. Why? Well, because it is, it is a rhetorical device that's called a diacope, which is in the form ABA. And you hear a lot of things like that. So burn, baby burn, home, sweet home. It's a particular rhetorical device. It's not about the information. It's about how it sounds and the fact that there's a pleasure component that you appreciate, which may not be, in, may not be directly linked to the meaning. Okay? And there's an attraction there. So therefore, we understand that if that's true with something like the English language, it's true with all languages, they have rhetoric or like rhetorical devices, how much more so with Kalamullah, with the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So yeah, I would say that even exposure to the Quran is, is, is good. It, it has its own effect, right? Okay, Were there, so can I get one from here and then come back to you? Okay, yes. Yeah, so brother, I highly you mention about how you should do the Allah. Sure. Yeah. Can you talk about what you should not do? What you should not do? I think, you know, that's almost intuitive, right? Like I mentioned some of the brothers in, 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 w- who were there. I mean, you, you want to not be abrasive. Let's just put it that way, right? And just that's a, a, a normal human reality, right? If you are going to be abrasive and let's say, rude or very kind of direct, and that's something that's going to turn people off from the message itself, right? So the first thing is kind of make sure you, you check your own character, be aware of yourself. And sometimes, you know, people can be in a state of impatience and you can end up being rude, right? Someone cuts you off in traffic, you're like, Whoa! you know, but you are a reflection of Islam when you're doing that, right? Like I used to have a friend and every time he got pulled over, you know, he rolled down his window and the cop would be like, oh, so you're going really fast, huh? And he would be like, yeah, man, I'm really sorry. By the way, I'm Hindu right because he didn't want to give islam a bad reputation now i'm not saying you do that obviously that was totally wrong but you understand the idea is understand that you are an ambassador of this deen whether you like it or not so you have to be aware of yourself so character first and foremost is one thing you have to be really cognizant of um, as far as other things you know you know the type of speech that you have words that you choose and a lot of that's going to come by way of practice you know one of the issues is that we Very few of us, I shouldn't really say very few of us, many of us don't have practice in actually speaking to non-Muslims about Islam. And forget that, even like ex-Muslims or other Muslims, it's just not something that we engage in on a daily basis. I mean, we're busy, we've got stuff to do, people to meet, bills to pay. So okay, fair enough. But that means we need to take a little bit more of a proactive approach then, right? Because you have a whole population of people that are walking around in the dark, And you have a group of people that the angels when they see them in this masjid they see light but what does it mean when that light is not being shown out to the rest of humanity no i'm just saying just throwing it out there all right so i think that was a bit of a long answer to what you asked but anyway so make sense yeah okay yes sister the dawah company Oh, Lighthouse Mentoring. So, no problem, inshallah. No, it's good. It's a, yeah.
0: First of all, thank you very much for whoever no one Sure. Whoever other guides, no one can Sure. So but this statement from the Quran, yeah that like I just said, yep. is there any really right way, a correct way, or wrong way because so just now you, you said set, sure. yep. set some point which we shouldn't do. And you said some point you think we should do. Yep. You You talk about the lady, the psychologist or whatever. Yep. Their methods. Their sure.
1: Thought. Right. But if Allah is the one who guides the proceeding. Sure. So this comes into the difference of what do we mean by Hidayah. So Hidayah guidance is classified into, you can say, two broad categories. You have hidayatul al-Irshad and you have Hidayah al-Tawfiq. Hidayah al-Tawfiq is that internal guidance that Allah puts in the heart of a person. Okay? Hidayatul al-Irshad is more what we call like, you know, that you are guiding someone by simply telling them you should do such and such. So let me give an example. Let's say someone asked me for directions to go somewhere. Okay? Now, and this might be a dated example because we all have Google Maps, but let's just pretend like the guy lost his phone or something, okay? So now I tell him, okay, you are going to go down you know, this street, make a right, make a left, and you'll get to your destination, Right? inshallah. Now, that is a type of guidance that I'm just informing him, I'm just giving him information. Whether he takes that information and applies it himself that is guidance from Allah. Like I don't have any control on that. And that's why the Prophet Sallallahu many times when he would be saddened by people not being guided, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala said, you don't guide whom you love. اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يشاء Allah is the one who guides whom he wills. But at the same time, your objective is to convey the message, to convey, right? So we understand that there's two types of guidance. One, is what we are responsible for, and the other, we don't have a responsibility. Whether the person actually converts or not, it's not in our hands. So we convey, we don't convert to make it really simple, right? But we still have to convey. We still have the responsibility, right? And yes, there is a correct way of doing that that is more in line with how the Prophet did it, and there is a way that kind of deviates from that, right? Someone comes up to you and says, you know, we should make da'wah by, you know, you know, doing a music concert or something, you'll be like, yeah, I don't think so, man. <laughs> right? Like, that's not not going to work. Right? We're not going to do it on that route. So, Allah knows best. Any other questions from the sisters? Yeah? So, that's a very broad question. What do you mean by not practicing? Does that mean, like, no salah, or skipping out on salah? Does it mean, like, okay, they stop coming to the masjid? Like, what? Because that's such a broad category. Okay, so maybe the objective here is to get them to start praying. Let's just say, let's take that as an example. You've got to find out why they stopped, if they were praying at all. I mean, if they were never praying in the first place, then it's up to you to say, you know what, this is why salah is important, and so on and so forth. But let's say they stopped praying. So now it's not a simple matter. Now you have to kind of investigate, okay, what was the reason they stopped praying? What was their attachment to the Salah in the first place? And I'm just using Salah as an example. You can, you know, the point is is that you have to A, have a relationship with the person, and then you have to start to investigate what happened. What was the background, right? Was it something that your parents said to you? Was it something that you know, someone in the masjid like, you know, just yelled at you? Because again, you have those emotional associations, and those are really the triggers as opposed to, you know, I don't pray because it doesn't make sense. Usually that's not the case. There's something, there's some, what they call antecedent that is back there that you have to kind of investigate and see, all right, so what's going on? Like what happened? You know? Okay. Last question? Okay. Can I let him ask because you already got a chance? So I'm going to go ahead and give it to, go ahead. Yeah. does Like
0: for
1: example, like when we're doing we start off Yeah. Sure. Right, like you, the man. Right. Okay. How do you keep your dawa, or not your dawa, your, your ego in check when you are making dawa? Right. Which is a common problem, by the way, and especially if, like, you know, you're doing like YouTube dawa or something like that. Then that just, you know. So one of the pieces of advice that some of my teachers gave me, they said, "Look, one trick of shaitan will be like, look, you're showing off. You are doing what's known as riyah, You're showing off your deeds. Stop doing it." but that's not the right option because as Qadi Iyad said, the one who gives up a deed because of Riyah is committing Riyah, right? So that's not an option. You have to continue making Da'wah. But what do you do in that case is, and one piece of advice, and there's actually a number of pieces of advice, but let me just give you one, is to bolster that, augment that with many acts of worship done in private. So ask yourself, how much tahajjud am I doing, right? And and nowadays, nights are long, days are short, good time to start, right? How much am I going out and, let's say, giving charity without anyone else knowing? Am I doing any fasts? How much am I fasting that nobody knows? And so on. So one way of dealing with that is to do many, start doing a lot more, let's say, copious acts of worship that are done in private without leaving off the public acts that we're doing and dawah being one of them. So, Allah knows best. Okay. So, I think you want the last question. Sisters, are there any que- more questions? No? Okay, we will let you have the last question, inshallah. Do we have to have a lot of knowledge People have a lot of knowledge. Like,
0: they have about their religion, our religion. Sure. They surahs and then... Sure.
1: So, again, what I want us to do is really to understand that dawah is not just intellectual arguments, okay? Because if you categorize and you conceptualize dawah as these type of, like, you know, what we call apologetics, then yeah, you probably need a lot of knowledge, but dawah is much more than that. And what happens is that shaitan can come to you and say, you're not knowledgeable enough. Okay, fair enough. But now the issue is, is that when do you get to be knowledgeable enough? At what point do you say, now I'm knowledgeable enough and pious enough, and now I can make dawah? There's no sort of, I mean, you could keep on studying you know, forever, technically, and never get to the point where you think, okay, now I'm qualified. Why? Because the second you say, now I'm qualified, you've entered into another realm, which is that shaitan has now deceived you to say, like, you're all that and a bag of chips. You're amazing. So now you can go out and make dawah. The reality is, is that whatever knowledge level that you have, you can make da'wah based on the knowledge you have. You at least, have a, you at least know why you're Muslim, right? I hope. You know that Allah's worthy of worship. You know what worship is, right? And so on. Those are baseline things. And if you really think about it, you know, take the example of like Abu Bakr. You know, I mean, in the first day he becomes Muslim. The first day he brings in what was it, depending on the narration, five or seven of the 10 people promised paradise. That is some good quality dawah. How much knowledge was there to start off with? The whole Qur'an was not, a very small part of the Qur'an was was revealed. So do you have to have, you know, do you have to know like the Bible inside out and the, the Vedas inside out and you can quote chapter this and chapter that and this and that and blah, blah, blah. No. That might even work against you in certain cases, you know? so. So, that being the case, don't let, let's say, a lack of knowledge be an impediment to you making dawah. At the same time, recognize that you're not going to know all the answers. And your best friend, if you're going to take anything home tonight, your best friend is the statement, I don't know. La adri, wallahu a'lam. I don't know, Allah knows best. I can find out and come back to you, but I don't know. You know, as they say in, this, in, in, the, in the UK, I don't know if they say that here, stay in your lane. Understand, like, where, what you have. If you have the knowledge to answer it, bismillah. If not, don't go beyond what, what, what you know, right? So, okay. So that was the last question, <laughs> inshallah. But I'll stick around for a little bit if you want to ask me later, inshallah. khair. Subhanakallahumma <inaudible> wa Ashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. wa ilaik.